Hey y'all, welcome to the very last episode of season three of A Slut with Morals. I am your curvy host, Ruby May. If you're new here, you can follow me on any social media platform by typing in A Slut with Morals podcast on that platform search engine, or simply click on the link tree in the description below. Super proud to say that this podcast episode is sponsored by the Grown Man Logic Podcast, where these guys are a dose of reality with a heavy urban influence. It's a show aimed at building better people through critical thinking and accountability. I love them and I honestly cannot wait to collaborate with them in season four. So do me a favor, look them up. Their link is gonna be in the description below. If you're new here and you just started listening, welcome to this podcast of chaos, where we embrace the weird. This podcast is a little bit of everything, a little love, a little dating, a lot of sex, a bit of conspiracy, some dark history, a bit of mental health, and true crime. Season three is now over, and I just want to let you all know that season four is probably going to be the best season I'll have with so many new guests I'm going to be having on the show. Next season is going to be it. I know it. So to all of you silent sponsors and partners and those that believed in me and in this podcast, thank you. But also, I have created a Patreon. Now, if you want to support the podcast, please listen. Otherwise, skip ahead about two to three minutes. Just letting y'all know, as season three comes to an end, it does not mean that I am not already working on season four. This season will either make or break me, and I pray it makes me. But I cannot do that without y'all. So with that, first things first. One, if you sign up for the Patreon, I ask that you do not sign up for any other tiers other than the $1 tier, because pretty much they're all going to be the same. But you will be the first to know what next episode's topic is and who I'll be interviewing. Two, as I take a small break in between seasons, I'll be coming out with new merch with exclusive promo codes for Patreon subscribers. Three, entries other than podcast entries will be journal-like. They will be my innermost thoughts and opinions and what's going on in my personal life, including dating, sex, etc. Four, I will still be asking for silent partners and sponsorships until I receive an actual full-on sponsorship. So, what is a silent partner slash sponsorship? Well, if you believe in the upcoming topic slash theme, you can send in a donation via Cash App or Zelle, or just a tip on Patreon. And what does a shout-out include? A shout-out of about $15 includes a huge thank you across all of my social medias, that's TikToks, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And yes, all links are available. So what does the money go towards, right? Well, as the podcast grows and topics become more and more heavy slash intense, I'd like to bring on experts onto the show to really dive deep. And unfortunately, experts require payment. I know, I know, trust me, I know. It will also pay for traveling expenses when I do need to go out of state to interview people or to fly the men. The money will also go towards new and better equipment and hopefully a studio. Now see, the link to the new merch is already in the Patreon with an exclusive promo code in it already, so please use it. Now, 
back to the episode. I wanted to end this season on a high note because I wanted to talk about this case for a while now. It involves a Marine. So much to see. A fragile psyche, fabricated love, chat rooms, and a life cut way too short. So, let's all jump into my time machine. We are now going back in time to May 2005. There's a war in Iraq. George W. Bush is president. Gas prices are about $2.30 maybe. $100 worth of groceries lasts you about two weeks. Movie tickets are only $6.50. Rent is a beautiful $750 across the United States, except for Cali, New York, and Chicago. The women are wearing hip-hugging jeans or denim skirts, thongs, and they have super straight hair. While the common looks for men included distressed denim, cargo pants with rugby or polo shirts, flip-flops, or tracksuits and sneakers. The number one songs playing on the radio are We Belong Together, Holla Back Girl, Wake Me Up When September Ends, Akon's Lonely, Eminem's Mockingbird, and Grind With Me by Pretty Ricky. For some reason, we keep letting the Black Eyed Peas reach the Billboard charts. Ugh, I know. We were so naive. Facebook is now the number one leading social media platform among adults, while MySpace is still number one in young adults. Chat rooms still exist. AOL and instant messaging are still huge and very important to this story. As I park my time machine in the year 2005, we've landed in upstate New York, outside of a house in the suburbs of Clarence. A tired 46-year-old Thomas Montgomery has just fired up his laptop and logged into Pogo, an online gaming and chat room. The former Marine, who had once spent six years in the Marine Corps as a young man, yet had never seen any combat, was now a husband to Cindy, a father to two young daughters, and a Sunday school teacher at his church. He also worked as a machinist making power tools at Dynabride Incorporated. In an interview later on, when asked why he did this, he responded with, I felt guilty that I just wasn't satisfied with my life, a life others would view as the American dream. His neighbors, like in every true crime documentary, would describe him as the nicest neighbor, a little awkward but a decent husband, and a wonderful father. See, what they didn't know was that behind closed doors, there was just a little bit more to it. You see, Thomas, a veteran of 17 years of marriage, had become impotent after years of abusing alcohol. So, while Cindy and the girls slept, our friend Tom would go downstairs and, instead of looking up ways to satisfy his wife in other ways or Google ways to help his impotence, he logs into Pogo and creates the screen name Marine Sniper. Shortly after, he gets a message from Tall Hot Blonde, age 18. You're in the wrong room, it says. This is a kid's room. In the irony of his panic and not wanting to be on the next episode of Dateline, Marine Sniper writes back, I'm 18, 
Taha Blonde sends Marine Sniper a picture of herself, and he sends one of himself from 30 years ago in his Marine uniform. And thus begins the flirtatious friendship between Marine Sniper and Tall Hot Blonde, who we will come to know as Jesse. From the get-go, Tom creates an alter ego for Marine Sniper. He pretends to be an 18-year-old Marine named Tommy, headed off to boot camp. And Jesse is an 18-year-old living in West Virginia. She was a junior and about to start her senior year of high school. She lived in a rundown home with her working dad, Tim, and stay-at-home mom, Mary. Over the course of a few months, Marine Sniper would open up to Jesse, tell her about how he hadn't felt love since his mom had died and how he just felt so depressed all the time. His dad barely paid attention to him because he was working all the time. When Jesse asked Tom why he wanted to be a Marine, he replied with, For once, I want to be the best of the best. In the first six months, our depressed and stimulus-hungry Marine, bored by his insufficient life, has now become addicted to the internet. But mostly, he's become intoxicated and infatuated by Jesse. She sent provocative pictures of herself in bikinis and short videos up her skirt. Jesse has been sending her Marine care packages, red lace panties, and a little heart necklace that says, Tommy and Jesse forever. Well, Jesse and Tommy eventually lose their virtual virginities together while Tommy is in a tank in Iraq. Not only that, but we find out that Tommy has proposed to Jesse within six months and she said yes. You see, Jesse kind of felt that her Marine Tommy was the ticket out of her small town home in West Virginia. But wait, did you hear what I said? Tommy was in a tank in Iraq. Hmm. Now, how weird that a Marine has both Wi-Fi and a laptop in a tank in Iraq during the war and is able to get on the chat room at the same time that Talhot Blonde is... Hmm. Turns out, Tom would then sometimes pretend to be Tommy's dad to relay messages from his son to Jesse. Meanwhile, the fantasy of Marine Sniper is becoming all too real for Tom. As the new 2006 year ring in, Tom had written himself a letter that he kept in his locker at Dynabride Incorporated. It reads, but not verbatim, you guys, okay? On January 2nd, 2006, Tom Montgomery, 46 years old, ceases to exist and is replaced by an 18-year-old battle-scarred Marine. He has $2.5 million in the bank with a working 9-inch dick, he wrote. He is moving to West Virginia to be with the love of his life. See, he vowed that he would set aside enough of his imaginary millions to care for Cindy and the girls, even as he fantasized about the life he would build with Jesse. When the new year began, however, he was still stuck in his aging body and stale life. He wrote in frustration, I wish I would know the exact time I would change to new Tommy to prepare for it. His fantasy is now becoming a reality, and Tom's wife, Cindy, grows more and more suspicious of Tom as he would stay on the computer until 5 to 6 a.m. 
and he would have to work at 7.30 in the morning. Yet, while his reality is becoming distorted and his love for Jesse is becoming too much at the same time, and as Cindy's suspicions rise, Tom tries to figure out how to end things with Jesse by pretending to be Tommy's dad and saying things like, I will no longer be the middleman. I don't want you talking to my son anymore. You're a distraction during his super important top secret recon missions. You see, Tom is starting to feel so guilty, both because of his need for Jesse, but the lack of attention he's giving his wife and kids. He ends up having what he thinks is a heart attack, but it turns out it was just an anxiety-induced panic attack from all the stress he was under and his worlds beginning to collide. You see, for Tom, this is no longer a fantasy. So, he decides to log off the internet for a while, but because he has this addiction, it just makes his anxiety worse. So, he decides to just no longer talk to Jesse. But then, in February of 2006, Cindy, his lovely wife and the mother of his two children, finds the care package Jesse sent Tommy. And when she sees those little red lace panties, it confirms all of her suspicions. Game over, Tom Tom. She confronts Tom about it and says, dude, she's 18. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're literally living the American dream. You have a wife you can fuck whenever you want to. Like, you have a great job. You got two kids. You have a nice house. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And Tom says, Cindy, it's just easier to, like, talk to someone I can't see. At this point, Cindy is just devastated and she's contemplating divorce, right? But while thinking of these options, she does something kind of really unexpected. She writes to Jessie and even sends her a picture of her, Tom, and their two daughters. She's like, yo, that bald-headed middle-aged dude you see in the middle? Yeah, that's my husband. You're Tommy. Leave us alone. He has a family. Like, goodbye. And how does Jessie react? Okay, Sis is mind-blown, right? She is absolutely shocked. She's hurt and disgusted that she's been talking to a 46-year-old dad, married dad, she feels betrayed, right? So she's angry. Not just that, but what we don't know at this time is that Jesse is also vindictive and spiteful. Tom tries to apologize to Jesse, but he honestly feels relieved. Like he no longer has to pretend to be two, almost three different people. And I say three because we all still put a mask on when we step outside of our houses, right? Like we all pretend to be better than who we are at work or church, the supermarket, and especially social media. We're all a bunch of lying assholes. But see, the thing about creating an alter ego while leading a double life is that while you may think that second persona is gone, that alter ego is still in the shadows, lurking, watching, waiting slowly crawling back to the surface. Marine Sniper, aka Tommy, was doing just that. 
So I promised a love triangle. I did. And here it comes. See, Tom had a co-worker at Dynabraid named Brian Barrett, a part-time 22-year-old college student in hopes of becoming a teacher. His screen name was Beefcake, and Beefcake would sometimes join in on Pogo, play a game or two with Marine Sniper. And Jessie remembers Brian, aka Beefcake. So she contacts him to find out more about Tom because she knew they worked together. She confides in Beefcake, and Brian is like, Skirt, what? And so Brian takes it upon himself and just sacrifices himself in order to console Jesse. And by that I mean he offers up his cyber dick. Right? Who wouldn't? Poor Jesse. Poor, poor, innocent little Jesse. So. Jessie starts sending Brian the exact same pictures she had sent to Tommy. Er, Tom. We can call him Tom now, right? And wouldn't you know it, Jessie is exactly Brian's type. Cute, blonde, athletic, funny, smart. She plays basketball, softball, and Brian loved baseball. That was his shit. But what Brian doesn't know is Jessie is still very mad at Tom. She's not over the betrayal. Oh, no, no, my friends. Remember I told you she's vindictive? Yeah. She starts using her relationship with Brian to get back at Tom behind Brian's back and is still messaging Tom saying the reason I love Brian is because he's not a liar. Tom again apologizes to Jesse, saying he didn't mean to hurt her and didn't really think it would go on for as long as it did, and that he tried breaking up with her so many times. And in a way, Jesse kind of forgives him, you know? I mean, they had spent almost a year in this forbidden online affair. She messages Tom one night behind Brian's back, kind of acknowledging his alter ego, and says, Don't let Tommy die. And Tom responds with, he won't as long as he is in your heart. Ugh. She says, let him live in you. He responds with, you're crying, aren't you? And she says, I haven't stopped because you sound just like my Tommy. God. Tom responds with, I can't be your Tommy. I wish you all the happiness in the world. I love you, Jessica, and I always will. So she says, okay, I'm ready. He says, okay, goodbye, Jessica. Goodbye, Tom. But that was not it. Nay, nay, my little heathens. No, no. After that convo, yeah. Jessie used her new beau, Brian, to instigate way more shit. They would go into the same chat rooms Tom would peacefully be in just playing his games and start calling him a pedophile, a loser, like getting people to report him until he lost access to Pogo. Tom tells them both to leave him alone, to stop talking to him, and Tom even stopped communicating with Brian at work, right? 
take things further with severe encouragement from Jesse, Brian ends up telling their their co-workers at the factory what Tom had done. Well, Brian kind of later realizes like how fucked up was like what he did, which is, you know, bringing in a fantasy to the real world. Like he knew he fucked up, right? Brian knew he fucked up and Brian truly does feel bad about it. So one day, Tom kind of hears Brian talking about how he's going to take a road trip from New York to North Carolina. And later on, Tom messages him and is like, are you going to go see her? And Brian, who's already kind of over all of Jesse's like drama, replies and says, actually, I'm kind of tired of her bullshit, man. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with her. And Tom replies with, I can't believe you chose her over our friendship. Go pop her cherry. I mean, bro code, right? But at the same time, Tom, like, shut up. You're married. You got kids. Like, you're almost 30 years older than her, dude. You know, like, I get it. But at the same time, stop. Full stop, my dude. Just full stop. Anyway, Brian's like, dude, why does it bother you so much? You're so much older than her. You could be her dad. boy does this piss Tom off. He ends up replying, tell your cum-sucking, inward-loving little whore to stay the fuck out of my life. You wanted her. You got her. So leave me alone. Bye, Brian. We're done. Intense. I know. Super uncalled for. And so unnecessary because before Brian even leaves New York to go see his family in North Carolina, he and Jesse get into this huge fright and she's like, oh my God, all you want me, all you want from me is sex. Like, we're so done. We're done. <sighs> and I wish I could tell you this is the end, but Jesse kind of goes back to Tom and begins to lure Tom, like kind of coaxing him to talk to her again by saying she just wants to start over as friends. Tom definitely questions it. Jesse starts using a tactic to get the fantasy of Marine Sniper and the love she had for him and is like, look, you and I, we meant way too much for each other to be the way we are now. You and only you are my connection to Tommy and I will love him till the day I die. Fantasies do not die that easy, y'all, because Tom is still Marine Sniper. He still believes he can somehow get back on track and that they'll be together again. And he admits that he still loves her and agrees to start over as friends. So then what happens? Well, Tom starts confiding in Jesse again, telling her how much he hates Brian and that for a measly dime, he would eliminate Brian. He has these moments where he's kind of like, he's still mad at Jesse, so he lashes out at her, right? And he's still hurt by everything that both of them put them through. And he tells her that Brian will pay in blood. Seeing, and like this, like seeing and reading this, instead of scaring Jesse or making her be like, yo, what the fuck? It seems to turn her on. Like she is super into it. She's She starts encouraging it because in all like the, the aggression like she's attracted to this aggressive side of tom so it's turning her on as she starts saying i miss tommy 
and you know she's like she's saying all of the like right things and it leads to cyber sex yeah guys i read the im exchanges and it is so weird and so cringe like oh anyway now that tom is back in jesse's clutches she starts flirting online with other dudes where he can see so tom threatened like tom is just like over it at this point he's like fuck you fuck your whole life like why are you playing with my head like this like why are you playing with my emotions like what the fuck is wrong with you and he's finally like yo like stop fucking with me and he ends up threatening jesse and he's after he's like stop fucking with me i'm gonna physically fucking hurt you so jesse gets her mom mary involved and jesse and tom stop talking for like two weeks right then jesse i know i know jesse comes back and tom's like what about your mom and very nonchalantly jesse's like well what mama don't know won't hurt her she'll never find out mm. mm-hmm. at this point tom's psyche is boobar it is fucked up beyond all recognition and the next few months is full of arguing verbal and mental and emotional abuse and of course super high sexual tension he is getting literal whiplash from the toxicity and like i said he's super fragile so what does jesse do jesse starts messaging brian behind tom's back tom finds out via myspace and he loses his shit jesse's like no we're just friends like stop thinking that and tom of course doesn't believe her because of their past and she just like breaks up with him she's like dude i'm over it i'm super over it so she reaches out to brian and she's like hey he thinks we're back together again and brian confides in her and is like i really don't care anymore he kind of freaks me out he's trying to hit me in the parking lot at work with his car I think I need to tell my boss. Do you think I should? And Jesse's like, IDK. And then they both just kind of like agree to just stay away from Tom because he's really starting to lose it bad. The message Tom sends to her on Wednesday, September 13th, 2006 is super fucked up. He wrote, you just want Brian's cock in your mouth. I never want to see you unless you're being gang raped by N-words. She signs off. He tries reaching out again on Thursday, September 4th, and she signs off again. He tries again on the afternoon of Friday, September 15th. She signs off again. Friday night at 10 p.m., three gunshots were fired outside of Dinah Braid's empty parking lot. Brian Barrett, age 22, was shot at close range in the neck and left arm after climbing into his truck at the end of his shift at Dynabride Corporation. Because he had had no weekend plans, Brian Barrett's body was not discovered until two days later on Sunday, September 17th, when a co-worker spotted his pickup in the company parking lot. Cops described the scene as cold-blooded, methodical execution. Y'all, if you play with fire, you will get burned. Brian had no idea what he was in for. He had never told his family what was going on, 
what had happened, what he did to Tom, nothing. And to be honest, what transpires in the next part of this story is probably more fucked up than the actual murder. From the very beginning, cops focused on Tom, but they couldn't find him. But what they could do is track down Jesse, afraid she could be the next one on the hit list. West Virginia Police Department, find Jesse, go to the house, and Jesse's mom, Mary, opens the door. And as cops are asking where Jesse is, because she could be in immediate danger, she's like, no, Jesse's my daughter, and she lives in Concord. And the face Mary makes, and the way her voice starts shaking, the cops are like, Something is up. So they keep pushing. They start interviewing her. And Mary confesses something that has astounded the investigators to this very day. You see, Mary confesses that she was the one that had been using not only her daughter's name in the chat rooms, but had been sending out her daughter's pictures to men online impersonating her. Just as Tom had lied in this fantasy world, so had Mary. And what is so frightening about this is that Mary could have produced the harassment, the kidnapping, or even the murder of her own daughter. Mary had created the perfect storm and she created it over and over and over again. The only person who had been 100% honest in this entire situation was now dead. When police questioned Tom Montgomery, he refused to cooperate. In a fucked up way, when he told the cops he didn't do it, he really believed he hadn't. And in a metaphorical way, he didn't. Marine Sniper did it. And he did it exactly the way a Marine Sniper would rifle and well perpetrated. Tom had lived out that fantasy to the very last bullet. Since Tom wasn't confessing, the investigation intensified. All three of their computers were confiscated, revealing almost two years worth of chats. A page pit left at the crime scene matched Tom's DNA. A gun clip by Brian's truck was also traced back to him as well. And while investigating the neighbors, they found that Tom had once told one of them that if he ever murdered someone, he would have used an M1A1. Coincidentally, the same shell casings had been found at the scene of the crime. They seized Tom's gun cabinet, but there was no gun. Finally, they come across this old picture and forensics enhances it. And they see the rifle in the background of this picture. Oh yeah. In November of 2006, they arrest Tom, who still has no idea that Jesse is actually Mary. So imagine being arrested and you're in this cold, small room and they hand you this picture of a short 46-year-old lady with a chili bowl, Karen-like haircut. And they tell you, this is tall, hot, blonde. The color drains from Tom's face. He doesn't talk, he lawyers up. And once he's taken to jail, he stops eating and loses about a hundred pounds. Then before his trial, 
He finds his bunkmate's pills. He takes 25 Seroquel and tries to commit suicide. It doesn't work. He tries to plead insanity, but because the murder was so very well thought out, he couldn't. The psychologists were like, no, this dude's not insane. Tom then says he has an alibi and that his wife Cindy and his kids will vouch for him. Cindy was like, LMAO, nope, this dude was not home on the night of the murder, lol. And almost one year after the murder and his arrest, on August 2nd, 2007, Tom Montgomery, 48, of Cheektowaga, pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter in the September 2006 death of 22-year-old Brian Barrett. Justice Penny Wolfgang ordered Montgomery to serve 20 years in prison with five years post-release supervision. After serving 17 years in 2024, which is in just two years, he is up for parole. Mary was never criminally charged because in 2005, there was no law against impersonating someone else like there is now. Exactly, you guys. Thanks to cases like this one, catfishing someone can lead you to be fined and jailed for up to 10 years. But Mary, this woman, even when she had to fly up to New York from West Virginia and testify in a courtroom, was never fully honest with her husband, Tim. Tim says she was never fully remorseful and he didn't know the full extent of what had happened until his daughter, the real Jessica had told him. And the real Jessie? Well, she found out about her mom through her college friends. I can't even imagine the embarrassment. Jessie hasn't spoken to her mom since 2006, and Mary has never once apologized. Her ex-husband Tim believes Mary should have served time in jail. During the trial, when she was asked why she did this, said the only reason she even kept talking to Tom was to keep him from talking to real-life teens. But that doesn't excuse her from talking to Brian. And get this, when they confiscated her computer, Mary had hundreds and hundreds of pictures of her daughter Jessie. She even had and took pictures of Jessie without Jessie's knowledge, including videos up Jessie's miniskirts. Mary was sending out these pictures of her daughter to other men, not just Tom and Brian, and asking them, do you like it? Like I said, Mary cannot be charged with any crimes, but she did something far worse. Not only did she impersonate her daughter, she lied, cheated on her husband, manipulated everyone around her, ruined another marriage, turned two friends against each other, encouraged acts of violence that resulted in death. No, the worst part was that she weaseled her way out of it. Even a snail, y'all, even a snail will give up its life to protect its young. In 2009, the first public sightings of Mary that surfaced, I mean, at least she was finally blonde. All right, you guys, that concludes the very last episode of season three of A Slut with Morals. The documentary for this episode will be down in the description below. I am your host, Ruby May. 
I will be back May 4th to drop season four of A Slut with Morals on the very second anniversary. In the meantime, hit up the Patreon. It is just a dollar a month and find out what I'm up to during this break. Check out the new merch that just dropped. Patreon subscribers already get a go at the new merch on the online store with an exclusive promo code for 20% off. The rest of you will be able to get that link at the end of April. I love you all. Thank you so much for letting me be the voice in your ear. And I cannot wait for season four. Don't forget to rate the podcast and tell all of your friends about it. Okay? Okay, thanks. Bye.